My name is Pastor Susan, and it is a privilege to serve as a pastor in this church. It's great to see your faces, and I'm so glad that you're here. And for those of you who are joining us online, I'm glad you dialed in as well. So at this time, we are doing a sermon series called Advent Conspiracy. And this is a movement that is happening right now among many churches across the country and all over the world. And we are seeking to align ourselves with the original purpose and the spiritual center of Christmas. So even in this special time of Advent, in the four Sundays before Christmas, we're really trying to not just celebrate Christmas, but what does it mean for us to really get to the center of what Christmas is all about and to really align ourselves spiritually with that? So we are conspiring to resist that which draws us into a Christmas that is shallow, or merely consumeristic, or commercial, or purposeless, or frenzied, or even harmful. We are conspiring to resist that. And to that end, every Sunday this Christmas, I mean this Advent, we are going to focus on one of the four tenets of Advent conspiracy, and those are worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. So those are the four themes. And today we're going to talk about spend less. Ready? All right. So why spend less, Pastor Susan? Why would we do that? Well, let me give you a few reasons. The National Retail Federation estimates that Americans will spend between 942 to 960 billion dollars during the holiday season, during one holiday season. And globally, it is well over $1.2 trillion spent on the decor and the gifts and the parties and etc. every Christmas. One third of all adult Americans will go into debt or further into debt from their Christmas spending. And that number is much higher globally with the people of the UK and Romania going into the most debt globally. I guess the people of the UK and Romania really like to spend their Christmas. Who knew? But all this happening at a time when 1.1 billion out of the 6.1 billion people, one-fifth of the people who live on earth right now, live in acute, multi-dimensional poverty. And we are living in an era where the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, declared a public health crisis of loneliness and isolation and a lack of connection in our country. We're in the midst of, post-pandemic, a public health crisis. Even just from his own medical general health perspective, he says there's a massive unwellness of disconnection and isolation and loneliness happening. And yet, people are celebrating Christmas by 
overspending, thoughtless spending, debt-producing spending, frenzied spending that has become just a natural and expected part of Christmas, right? Do you agree that just spending, spending, spending is just kind of assumed? It's just a natural and expected part of the I said it in my sermon two weeks ago. I just came up with it. The American Christmas Industrial Complex. And it's not good for us. It is not good for us. For those of us who are Christians, we ask ourselves, is this the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ? An Advent conspiracy is saying no. Hmm. But wait, you might say. Isn't buying gifts for other people a good thing? Isn't this, what if this is part of how I show my love? Isn't spending money part of the reality of celebration? And celebration is a good thing, right? Plus, spending stimulates the economy. And that's a good thing too, right? Well, yes, celebration is a good thing. Actually, that was our theme this past summer. We talked about how celebration is at the heart of God. And giving gifts can be a wonderful way to express that we love each other. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, some of us are especially talented in showing love through gift giving. That's a language of love for some of us. And sure, a strong economy is a good thing if you're looking at our country through the economic lens. But I want to share with you two scriptures that really push up against and challenge how we tend to do Christmas. The first scripture is from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So this teaching is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying this to everyone. This isn't just a special thing he says to his 12 disciples, but he's saying, you guys, all of you, there are two kinds of treasures. Okay, there's treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. And in one, moth and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. In other, and, and with the other one, this does not happen. In other words, one is lasting and secure, and the other is temporary and uncertain. And whichever one you choose, it's kind of a big deal. This is a really important thing because your heart goes with that treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart also goes. And when he says heart... He's talking about the center of your life, the the seat of your passion, your purpose, your affection, your motivation. And I would just like to acknowledge here that having your heart be interested in treasure that's on earth is a very natural default, right? It's a natural thing uh, for humans to be very interested in treasures on earth because they are shiny And they are powerful, and they're very tempting to give your hearts to, 
I would like to give you permission at this time in the middle of church to think about what is the thing that you are tempted by the shininess, either physical shininess or just the attraction in your life right now. I shared with you very vulnerably two weeks ago that it was a doggy advent calendar. (laughs) All right, what is it for you? What is it for you as you're trucking along in December and suddenly you're like, that car or this decor for my house or this outfit or what is it that's like shiny to you? Because we all got our things, right? Am I right? I think we all have our things, some of us more than others, things that say, yoo-hoo, your life would be better if you had me in your life. Yes, even brand new electronics or tech devices or the highest quality fashion forward clothes, whatever it is. I mean, some of us think, I, I have no interest in tech devices. Other people are like, tech devices. That's the, your toy of choice. But the problem with all of these shiny things uh, isn't that they're evil in and of themselves. It's just that Jesus says they are temporary and ultimately unsatisfying, even if they are shiny and tempting. And he says everything, all the stuff, all the things are to, uh, ultimately temporary and unsatisfying. Even the things that declare themselves to be not necessarily temporary and deeply satisfying. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Consider the diamond. Did you know that the phrase, a diamond is forever, was made up by an advertising agency that was hired by the De Beers Diamond Company? Did you know that that phrase is just made up? And this phrase was the De Beers uh, Diamond Agency about 80 years ago decided, wow, we need to sell more diamonds. They, uh, diamonds weren't a very common thing. So they came up, some lady at this advertisement agency said, a diamond is forever. And uh, I'll tell you about the impact of that, but... Uh, prior to that, and for millennia before, like in thousands of years, about a thousand years ago is when historians see that the concept of a ring being connected to marriage. I mean, early in time, uh, did you get to choose your own spouse? Not very often, no. It's usually your parents who found a spouse, and maybe they would exchange Goats, or I don't know, you know, like whatever it was in that cu- culture. But I think the uh, the concept of a ring is so ubiquitous now. We think, oh, of course, forever a ring, a diamond ring. But that's not really been true. Um, some and eventually it became some sort of ring, definite, um, defining or representing like eternity. Um, but before the 1940s, very few Americans uh, had a ring. A, a diamond was not involved in a marriage proposal. It was an unknown thing. But in the mid-1940s, this ad agency was hired by De Beers, and they came up with this phrase. So from 1939 to 1979, the De Beers wholesale diamond sales in the United States increased from $23 million to $2.1 billion. Just in the United States, just in this country, 
for that company. And over those decades, the company's advertising budget soared from $200,000 to $20 million a year. Last year, the advertising budget for this same company was $20 million a year. And it was from this massive advertising campaign alone that the idea of a diamond engagement ring started just 80 years ago. Uh, This concept, though, was based on a lie. This concept that diamonds are actually forever. Yes, they are very hard gems. Um, One of the hardest, I think it's the hardest of the gems. But this image being expressed that a diamond is forever is untrue. In fact, it can be shattered, it can be chipped, it can be discolored, it can be incinerated. Actually, that's why they have different levels of quality in diamonds, because sometimes they have cracks in them, and sometimes they can break. But the image, just think about the image that's being expressed, which is so attractive to that huge number of couples who want to be engaged and to be focused on forever, right? Think about how powerful that is. A marriage reflecting foreverness, endless, constant romance, glamour, and beauty. That shall be yours if you have a proper diamond ring. Which I know reflects the reality of my marriage. <laughs> endless, constant glamour, romance, and beauty. But this promise was completely made up by a diamond company and advertising agency. And when De Beers wanted to expand their market, when they pretty much conquered the United States, they looked around the world and they targeted Japan. I thought this was so interesting as an Asian American. Japan, where there was no deeply rooted tradition of people being engaged by rings or diamonds. Um, because in Japan, as with uh, many traditional cultures, it was parents who just chose your or, you know, brought a, a couple together. So in 1967, when this campaign began, less than 5% of betrothed Japanese women had a diamond engagement ring. But by 1981, that figure had risen to 60% in a short number of years. And then Japan became the second largest diamond ring market in the world after the United States. Reality created. Market created. Communication created. And yes, that a gem, the diamond, is a pretty solid diamond, But that which it communicates is especially untrue. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. All marriages will end, either by divorce or death. All marriages will end. If you're married, it isn't forever. Uh, Because Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. So marriages will not last forever. And there's, marriage is not the endless gateway to constant romance, glamour, and beauty. I hate 
to break it to you. (laughs) And despite whatever the uh, marketing says to us, no thing can truly be yours forever. No thing, even the best German-made car (laughs) will not last forever. In large part because we don't last forever, right? We can't have things forever because we don't last forever in this form and in this world. Not with our things. When Jesus says, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, he's making the point that treasures on earth do not last forever. Does that make sense? Nothing. Even things on sale to capture your attention on Instagram. It will not last forever. The things don't meet our deep need to be loved and known and secure, right? The deepest need of human beings is to be known and loved and secure, and no thing will make that come true. I know you know this, but I know you're appreciating me saying it again right? No thing will give you that. And if I could give a gift to my kids where they knew that they were loved and secure and and valued, I would give that to them because that's really what I want for them, right? It's not like I want the, uh, the next iPhone for them. That's not really what I want. But I want them to know that they're valued. They're loved, And wow, if I could give them a sense of being secure and not having to be insecure for their life. Oh, that is what I want. That is what I want for my best friend, for my my spiritual community. That's, That's the gift I really want to give, right? And I would give that over even if I could give you a million diamond rings and a zillion iPads. What my heart desires for you is to know that which only God can give to you, that you are loved and secure and valued. And this is what Jesus taught that we should not store up for ourselves treasures on earth because those things can't do that. And that doesn't mean you can't own anything or appreciate certain things. I mean, that's the concept of art, right? It helps us to appreciate things and what they communicate. And I'm not trying to say that shopping is evil. Please don't uh, think that that's my point. Shopping is necessary in our culture. You shouldn't feel bad or dirty because you're shopping. That's not the point. But the point is that Jesus wants us to know that the things that we may shop for aren't going to really do the thing that we want for our loved ones. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying the things that you can buy, things that you can own, things that you can give, should not capture our hearts. Uh, Some of you may know the series called Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. And there's a character in the Lord of the Rings series called Gollum. And what an interesting character. This is him. He actually begins as a cute little creature, um, a cute hobbit, 
But his love, he falls in love with this ring and starts yearning for it, desiring it, lusting for it, coveting it. And he turns into something ugly and grotesque because he falls in love with this thing. And he stops caring about anything else. And he calls it my pretty or my precious. But it does not lead him to a happy life or a happy ending, right? He falls over a mountain into a lava bed that destroys him because he gave his heart to that which cannot give him life. Now, I realize that most of us don't love our things as much as Gollum does, right? You may have a favorite thing in your life or something you're like, oh, I hope I get this for Christmas. And maybe you don't love it. You're not like, my pretty, this cup, you know, you're not like this, you know, you're not in love with your things. But why even approach that? And we just know, and, and the word of God for you today is that the things that we are tempted to treasure don't give us that which we truly need. We are invited today, this year, this Advent, and always to not treasure things. Now, of course, that is not as easy as it sounds. How, Pastor Susan, how can we have the power to spend less during Advent in the Christmas season when we are being actively marketed to at all times, right? The the diamond story tells us like, ooh, that marketing thing, powerful. Right? The algorithm of what's coming at us right now online or you know many other ways is so powerful. Sometimes do you ever find that really creepy? Like what shows up and why? Sometimes I think I can think about socks and then it'll show up on my feed. Like, how did they do that? Are they in my brain? It's amazing. So what is the secret to resisting the temptation to spend more and more and to set our heart on things? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that he knows a secret. He says in Philippians 4, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you renewed your concern. You at last renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the Philippians have uh, given him a gift. And he's like, oh, wonderful. I'm so glad for that. But then he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do this, all this, through him who gives me strength. So he even uses that word, secret. I, know, I have this secret thing. I've learned the secret of being content. And he says, in every circumstance, in all circumstances, I can be content. Now, I want you to think about when was the last time you were discontent when you're like ah my life Rah. does anyone ever do that in your head or is it just me yeah oh maybe it's me but this guy says i've learned this thing where i can be content 
no matter what is happening in my life. And I'm like, that, no. That's crazy. Crazy contentment. Whatever your circumstances, because circumstances can be powerful, right? Circumstances, we're talking like, I have a job, I don't have a job. I get along with my best friend, I'm not getting along with my best friend, right? These are big variables. I get to be with my loved ones, I don't get to be with my loved ones. I'm healthy, I'm unhealthy, very sick, lots of money, beautiful home, no home, lots of variables. But he's like, these things don't really affect me because I've learned this thing. Can you imagine being content whatever the circumstance? It's, that just feels like this mystery to me. Like, wow, what would that be like to be content whatever the circumstance? What is the secret to that? Because he's like, I've learned this secret. Thank you very much. You know, and you're like, well, what's the secret? What exactly is the secret? Well, we know that it must have to do with being strengthened by God because he says that in the very next verse. He says, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. But he doesn't really lay it out. Like, how do you get your heart to that place where you're like, whatever happens in my life, I'm still deeply at peace. And it just makes me go, hey, Bible guy, (laughs) explain this to me more. I need a little more information. I may be slow. So, if you feel like that, I want to suggest that you read this book. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is a 200-page book about contentment. And I have read it like three or four times. And each time I read it, I go, whoa, it is so challenging. He, uh, past, uh, Pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote this in the early 1600s. So it's one of those old classic books that no pictures and not a lot of illustrations, but super deep. And uh, Jeremiah Burroughs says that Christian contentment is a sweet inward heart filled with the grace of Christ that is in me. And he just breaks it down in like a super thorough way. What is contentment? And how does a Christian go after that? Uh, He says, though I do not have outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. This 200-page book talks about the secret of contentment. And every time I read it, it is so nourishing to me. If you struggle, brothers and sisters, if you struggle with being bored or dissatisfied or discontent in any way, you should read this book. If you struggle with being jealous or covetous or critical or feeling empty, you should read this book. In fact, I will buy it for you for Christmas, mostly because it's available for free online in PDF form. But Christian contentment is indeed a rare jewel. 
a wonderful mystery, a grace that comes with knowing the real Jesus better every day. Because it is one of those signs when we are massively discontent. Now, I'm not talking about whether if you're suffering. Some of us are suffering, right? And some of us have prayer requests. And some of us have needs. That's not the same as contentment, a sense that God's got me. Okay? So I don't mean that if you're like, I have a complaint (laughs) that you should feel bad. You know, that's not the same thing. But contentment is a, a ground level underneath that of knowing how much Jesus fills us. Okay? And I would like to also clarify that Christian contentment is not the same as other kinds of contentment or other kinds of peace. I remember this story years ago when the woman that I was rooming with, um, uh, my roommate from college, we were still rooming together after college, and she got really into this Christian meditation group. And so she went to, it was pretty much prayer really quietly. So she went to this Christian meditation group, and a bunch of people who were Buddhists came and said, oh, we love meditation, can we join you? And the Christians were like, Sure, I guess. We're mostly we're quiet together, so that's fine. And one of the Christians said one to the Buddhists, um, totally, that's fine. I mean, it's pretty much the same anyway. And one of the Buddhists, a very wise person, spoke up and said, no, actually, we are different. You guys, uh, we get, we Buddhists get peace from emptying ourselves of all desire and attachments. But you guys get peace through being filled up with God and your Holy Spirit. (laughs) And my friend was like, it's not really our Holy Spirit, but yes, that's a really still a good, very good point. These are very two very different things. In the world, or uh, in for these Buddhists, they were like, we get peace by not having attachments. Or maybe uh, in common matter, like not caring, Right? I know that Buddhism is more complex than that. So please don't like that's exactly how you explain Buddhism. But that's what this guy said. That we empty ourselves of attachments. But you guys, you wacko Christians, you seem that you have contentment because you are filled with God and this Holy Spirit. And my friend was like, that was one of the most profound things I've heard. And it's so true. We have Christ, and we have Christ in us. We are touched, surrounded, filled even with this gift of such extreme, mind-blowing value that whether we have or don't have something else is of no compare. Right? You realize that you have, we have in Christ something, someone, a gift of such massive worth that as we get to know the reality and value of Christ, the gift of Christ to us, we realize, oh my gosh, anything else in life is like neither here nor there. This week, my family, we were given a gift of massive worth. And I don't have permission to tell you about it anymore, but uh, suffice it to say, a very big gift. But my husband did this thing where he spent $500 on a suit for my daughter. Um, and it was just a thing that happened. Now, we've been given this huge, un- 
unbelievable gift. And if I were to just super focus on what? I got a gun at an old Navy for 150, you know? I think that the wise thing is to go, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's fine. You know, in light of the huge gift that we've been given, I'm just going to let this go. Also, we'll return it. (laughs) But if you don't know Jesus this way, then you have a lot to grow in, right? Which we all have a lot to grow in, right? If you don't realize, oh my gosh, compared to anything in my life, compared to, to even my job, even this plan, even this blah, the, that which I have in Jesus is so of much more eternal worth. I can learn to let this go. That is the peace and the contentment we have in God. And God is, Jesus is that good. So contentment. I hope and pray that you receive more of that this Christmas. That is a, a great gift. And with that gift of contentment, we are free to spend less. We're free to resist the narrative that uh, you can buy happiness. My happiness or your happiness, your kid's happiness, your spouse's happiness. We can resist that. We can be thoughtful about what we buy and where we buy it. We can slow down and make sure that our hearts are focused on God and people and not being wackily influenced by the advertisements that come our way. A few practical ideas. One thing is that my family, knowing that this Advent conspiracy is coming along, we sat down and we decided, okay, how can we spend less this year? So instead of all of us getting each other a gift, we decided to go on a Secret Santa website and put in our names, and it tells us, like, okay, I'm buying gift, I'm buying one gift for one person in my family. So that cuts down like three other gifts. Um, and we decided to put a cap on that so we can spend less. And then with the money that we save, we're going to give as a family to the Sri Lanka school supplies fund that our church is doing together. You don't have to do that. There may be some other way that's right for you. But the key is you have to stop and think about it. Okay, You are not likely to just truck along and accidentally spend less in America right now, right? Uh, maybe some of you, but most of us, we are in a mighty river that swiftly moves us along toward spending more. Am I right? The pressure and the flow of spending more is strong. And so if we're going to intentionally spend less, it takes resistance. It takes thoughtfulness, prayerfulness, taking the time, slowing down first enough to take the time to think and talk, strategize about how we might spend less and what's right for um, your community or your loved ones or your family. The important thing about spending less isn't just that you spend less or spend less to spend less or be stingy or be caring. But the important thing about spending less is that it is a spiritual practice that is a God-filled discipline. It is a part of embracing contentment. It is being filled up with Jesus and is trying to be like Jesus. We're going to talk 
uh, next week about give more, about generosity. And there's a lot to generosity, how to think through that and think through it biblically. But that's got to be a part of why we're spending less, right? So that we could give more. I'm not just saying, hey, don't spend any money, be stingy. That's not really Jesus. But the heart of Jesus is generosity, love, and compassion. Particularly, compassion for the poor and the marginalized. If your heart is not constantly growing, especially during Advent, for the poor and the marginalized, I dare say you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus is always reflecting to us, here's a new way to love the poor and the marginalized, right? So that's just a teaser for next week. So um, as we talk about giving more, would you pray with me? Oh God, as I've prepared this sermon, I feel the spiritual warfare of that which wants me to spend my money. I know that I will feel it today if I hop on social media or even um, pretty much go on any website or just all around me, the, the, the temptation to put my hope into things and or to think that my children will be better and more loved if I buy them the right thing. I just confess that to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us. Whether or not we actually spend more or less, I ask that you would make us a congregation of people who are able to find our deep contentment in you. And we, we, we don't just bobble to and fro by our, the whims of our desires and the pressures of advertising. I pray that you would put your arms firmly upon our arms and guide us, Lord, in your ways. For you are worthy.